Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean and this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are discussing part two of the International Society for Equitation Science and their five um, final principles of learning theory. So we have 10 in total and we covered the first five in part one which was released last week, if you haven't had a chance to listen yet. And today we're going to dive in six through 10. So Nancy, if you want to just give us a little overview of what number six was. Okay, six is uh, correct use of operant conditioning. And the tenets behind that is uh, by understanding that horses will repeat or avoid behaviors according to the consequences by removing pressures at the onset of a desired response, by minimizing delays in reinforcement, by using combined reinforcement, and by avoiding punishment. Now, um, I wanted to add to this that pressure release is negative reinforcement, and it's almost impossible to only use negative reinforcement alone in training horses, but it's equally almost impossible to just use positive reinforcement. So when you have a mix of both negative and positive reinforcement, then you have combined reinforcement. And operant conditioning is basically a learning process the horse goes through based on these reactions we give them. So whether we give them a positive reaction or we give them a negative reaction, they then associate and whether they've achieved what we're asking them to achieve or not. Yeah. And I think it's important to always assess what your training methods are because like negative reinforcement is removing something, removing pressure and positive reinforcement is adding something. So uh, along the same lines, punishment can be positive or negative. And it's under those same directives of you're either adding a punishment or you're removing something. So a prime example of what does not work is punishment. And negative punishment is taking away social interaction from the horse. So removing the horse from its conspecifics, making it be alone, that's negative punishment. And then adding or positive punishment would be whacking it uh, when it does an undesirable behavior. Punishment does not work very well in horses because they can't be contemplative. They can't think why. Exactly. I think we kind of touched on that slightly last week about, you know, um, I think I gave the example of like the horse has been misbehaving or 
has like infuriated you somehow and then you're like well they've been acting up all day they're not getting this later and they don't comprehend that I would say with the combined reinforcement and specifically using positive reinforcement what's quite cool is that you can use treats for horses I mean they do respond to food and you can use voice commands with the treats Mm-hmm. or um, tactile so you can touch them but every time they get that treat they get a yes or good boy good girl good pony um, or maybe you give that treat and you scratch them on the neck and then what you're doing is when you're riding them you can use that voice command to reward them or that scratch on the neck to reward them because they have associated that with the treat so there are ways that we can kind of re- imagine how we train essentially from that point of view yeah and like when riding um you might do pressure and put a leg on and then when the horse responds take it off and then use your voice or your touch to put a reward and research has shown that a horse understands that even more so than the release alone And what's important to remember is with operant conditioning, if it's done incorrectly, um, the incorrect use of any conditioning really, it can lead to serious behavior problems. And these can manifest as aggression, escape, apathy, and overall, this is going to compromise welfare. So it's really important that if we're not trained in training horses, we seek advice from someone who knows what they're doing and take time to research the trainers you use as well and what method of training they're using because it may not be appropriate for your horse. Yeah, that's a wonderful point, Kate. That's so important. Um, Number seven is correct use of classical conditioning. And you do this by acknowledging that horses readily form associations between stimuli. And you can also do it by always using a light signal before a pressure release sequence. So I think people kind of use this as um, only use the amount of pressure that is necessary. Wouldn't you say, Kate, that's, that's the perfect way to gauge it? Definitely. Yeah. And, then, and I like to always say um, that, you know, some people get a little rough and they don't need to be that rough. So only use the, the amount of pressure that you need to get the response. The problem you can have with classical conditioning too, is the horse can associate um, basically an undesirable response with an unintended signal from the environment I suppose the best way I could probably try and explain this is if you're nervous of something in the environment and you tighten your legs or you grip the reins harder every time you come to that thing, you're going to condition the horse to have a response to that. And I was definitely a prime example when I was younger. I'd had a couple of bad instances with um, show jumping and I became afraid to jump on my horse. And then that was compounded by me thinking my horse didn't want to jump. 
So I was like, oh, it's the horse that doesn't want to. It's definitely me. But <laughs> when I got, when I went away to this like summer camp and got put on this horse that was like a push button pony, there was this really large jump in a cross country that I was coming up to and the horse refused to jump it, which was just unheard of for that horse. But it was my signals that I was giving. I was like conditioning that horse that whole week to be wary of that jump and be afraid of that jump. And I hadn't cleared it all week. So I think we do need to try and get out of our heads a little bit and really think, what is my body doing in this moment? And fitness plays a role in that as well, because, you know, how long you're able to give an aid for, and they don't need to be long in duration, but in the sense, you know, if you're doing a 45 minute training class and you're not fit enough, then your leg aids will change towards the end of the class, you know, the pressure might be the same. And it's just all about kind of creating consistent cues. And I think we need to be really conscious of our body to do that. Yep. And good body control is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, The number eight would be the correct use of shaping by breaking down training into the smallest achievable steps and progressively reinforcing each step toward this desired behavior by changing the context trainer place and signal one aspect at a time by planning the training to make it obvious and easy and I think the key in this principle is planning don't just get on your horse and do your training or your exercise session without a plan in your head because then you're not going to have any goals so it's so important to plan and break those lessons down into smaller steps definitely and I feel like that kind of cues in with how we've always said you know set them up for success set yourself up for success if you don't have that plan and you try something new you know like mid-training and it doesn't work out, you're far more likely to be like, oh, that doesn't work. And then just not continue with it, not try and, you know, break it down or tackle it in an easier way. And it might be something that's useful to your training regime. But then you get in your head that it's just not going to fit in or it's not for your pony. So I think definitely, as Nancy said, you know, like take one aspect at a time and focus on that. Yeah. And breaking it down into steps just makes for the least amount of stress on you as the rider and especially on your horse, because um, say like a mounting block session where the horse keeps stepping forward or backwards, um, you know, it's it's easy for you to get the horse to move rather than to have the horse stand still. So you be the one that tells the horse to move before that horse decides to move. And then you're in control and you're not being reactive to what he is doing. I think that's the biggest mistake that I made early on is I was always reacting. So if a horse stepped forward at the mounting block, my response was to back him or her up. Well, that's reacting to what they're doing. You have to go in with a different mindset and have a plan, knowing it's much harder 
for a horse to stand still or be in um, self-carriage at the halt. And it's easier to ask them to move. So use that to be able to retrain that mounting block behavior. Definitely. Yeah. So that, that was a tough one because it seems like it's so easy to always react, but you can be proactive and sometimes you just have to think it through. And if your horse has displayed kind of an aversion behavior, then before kind of, as Nancy said, before allowing that to continue a couple of times, be proactive, like, okay, well, normally the horse never has a problem at the mounting block, but today they kind of shied away. Tomorrow, what can I do to prevent that from happening again so we don't start to cement that? Yeah, and, and I think um, what I would do if I had a horse who wanted to walk off all the time, and so many thoroughbreds do because we get legged up on the track and they're on the move, they're walking. So I would find a way to reward it far standing still. So maybe cue the horse forward um, before the horse decides to go forward on its own. And then when it stands still, reward it. And then you're, you can do a little scratch at the withers or, it, you know, a food treat, whatever works for you and your horse. And so we know we can't stop the horse from moving so you begin with a lesson that you know you can achieve and it's movement of some kind and then offer the horse the opportunity to stand and relax and then add that positive reinforcement i think that is the best way to alleviate mounting block um, where they don't want to stand still or they want to move away and it just creates it into such a positive experience. Mm -hmm. I think um, the, you know, in these next two, I think what goes south is when we're always um, don't have a plan and don't know how to make the horse stand still where, well, you can't, you've got to give them the opportunity to stand still and then you reward that. Number nine is correct use of signals or cues, which we've kind of been talking about. And these ensure the horse can discriminate one signal from another. And by ensuring each signal only has one meaning, and by timing the signals with limb biomechanics, and by avoiding the use of more than one signal at the same time. So you might want to go into a lesson realizing to get the horse to stand at the mounting block, you're going to have to move the left hind hoof towards the mounting block. Break it down into that small one step. I think that's really useful. Like what get an overview of what the issue is and just sometimes as well standing back is just really handy and um, when we're up close and we're trying to do something we're trying to move horses we kind of miss the bigger picture also consider as well you know what what are you maybe doing differently you know are you suddenly behaving in a certain way or maybe you always would have got them to step back using the reins and now you've got a hand on their shoulder asking them to step back what's the cue that you're giving that you may not have realized you've changed if an 
if we do have an aversion that's occurring. But I think as well, sometimes I think with signals and cues, you know, during the summer when you're out horse riding and there are horse flies everywhere, and I feel like they are the bane of any equine person's existence. (laughs) But when they bite, they irritate the horse so much. And when we used to go trekking when we were younger, we'd always like, you'd notice the horse would start twitching and become irritated because a horse flies biting it. And we would be like looking around like, you know, where is it? And then we'd try and kill it so it wasn't hurting them. And I just always think like, we'd be moving along. Our body signal is so important. Like we would do lessons where we would put our reins down and just use turning our heads and turning our shoulders to guide the horse to move so that they became really perceptive to actually where we're looking. And you do that a lot in um, jumping or in dressage, you know, particularly jumping. As you're clearing your jump, you're looking to your next one. And the horse becomes really in tune with that. And then when we go out trekking, it's like it all flies out the window. We're looking all over our shoulders. We're taking in the view, you know, taking in the scenery and not understanding why they're like meandering in and out and they're not following the path. So just consider what what impact we're having, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to, to be mentally a step ahead of the horse, And sometimes we get lackadaisical. We're just along for the ride. And that's not a good way to be training them. That's when they usually end up training us. Mm -hmm. And number 10 is regard for self-carriage. And this is really important. Um, It's by training the horse to maintain gait, tempo, stride length, direction, head, neck, in body posture and by avoiding forcing a posture or maintaining it through relentless signaling and or nagging. And I see this a lot where it's not quiet hands, your hands are bouncing, that's gotta be nagging to them or your calf is bouncing off their sides and that's aggravating them. I mean, I think a lot of self-carriage is uh, confidence, too, that the horse can understand the one cue, uh, one signal, what you're trying to get. And then once again, like Kate said, it comes into good body control. And I think body control is like pivotal when it comes to rain tension, because we all know that we're like as individuals so different when it comes to how we do even the smallest tasks like if you think about tasks around the home or how much force we would put on something to move it some people are stronger than others so it really I think rain tension is just such a variable thing and it would be amazing to have some kind of instrument where we could really measure and we could get some kind of visible cue where we're applying too much tension and we've too much force there because as well, Nancy, as you said, if you're doing that and you're bouncing your hands or even just rattling it in their mouth, we know from previous episodes how much pain that bit can cause. And you really just need that quiet, calm holding, not, you know, 
pulling them back into you the entire time and then asking them for a forward movement. And you know, there's no, you cannot pull your horse into a proper frame. Just, you know, it's got to be self-carriage taught. And I always think that the horse can move each body part in six directions so they can go up, down, left, right, back and forward. And so much of what we want to tell them is one thing at a time. So um, I think it's breaking the lesson down into steps and knowing what body part you want to tell which way to go. I don't know, Nancy, if you would ever have come across this on the racetrack, and I don't think this kind of thing is done anymore, but um, it was the idea of like tying, well, you shouldn't really tie yourself if you're rising, but (laughs) we would have used rising crops through our elbows behind our back to keep our elbows right back and to keep our back straight and our posture. So you would rise with like a, a riding crop across your back and you'd hook both elbows on it to yeah. keep in that position. And um, there were many a bent riding crop at the end of a lesson. But I remember thinking like, surely like that couldn't really train you, could it? Because your muscles aren't learning to do that. It's like relying on something holding you in place. And I think gone are the days as well. I really hope it doesn't, I'm sure it occurs in minority areas, but, or in minority cases, I should say, but the tying of horses into position used to be a big thing. And for dressage and like tying some twine from the um, bit to the D ring on the saddle to try and hold their heads down. And that's, I mean, it's just barbaric to think that any of those positions would be forced in that kind of way where there's absolutely no escape for the animal. So I think it is so important that, I mean, they're not meant to look like that. You know, we just need to embrace their natural shape and stop trying to make them into a round ball. Just, you know, let them relax. And as long as they're moving and holding themselves well and they've got that muscle control, that's all we can really ask for. Yeah, I agree. And we don't have much equitation on the racetrack because the stirrups are usually somewhat short, not as short as in racing. But, you know, if you want to make a cross with your reins so the horse doesn't get away from you on the track, and then you have to put your feet by their shoulders, you've got that triangle triangle of leverage from mouth to hands to feet to mouth. And so that throws equitation out the window, so to speak. And the horse is always on the bit as it's going. And then also on the way to the track and then on the way back to the barn, sometimes I see a lot of bouncing hands and a lot of feet hitting the sides. Sometimes they're They got a song in their head and they're bouncing. I mean, there's not a lot of equitation, but there really doesn't need to be as these are young horses and they're usually pretty fired up. But I think it would only be beneficial if there were to be maybe more equitation science taught. I think so too. And I think that's the whole 
aim of these 10 principles is to just improve that welfare. Yeah. And I love racing. Don't get me wrong, but I know there's always room for improvement in any discipline and I'm, I'm not criticizing it, but I just wish that there would be more um, evidence-based science put into practice. Um, I think I should have had, um, I should have had a little disclaimer when I was saying about show jumping and dressage. I was not criticizing. I mean, well, maybe a little bit about the way things used to be done, but that's why we're moving, moving forward with how we train horses. Well, and I think the, the main thing is that we all need to be very aware of our own pressure, release, reward patterns. Um, The next time you're with your horse and you put a halter on, if it's out in the pasture or wherever, think, when do you take up the slack in that lead rope? Because there's your pressure. And do you release it when the horse follows Mm -hmm. you or do you keep constant tension on that? Because then you'll be aware that you need to work on your own uh, pressure release and reward system. So once we get better with it, then the horse will, the level of communication will just blossom. Definitely. And I would say as humans, we're all a little bit adverse to criticism. And some people are a lot more sensitive to it than others. And I completely understand that. But what I would say what makes it a lot easier is be open to learning. If you're open to learning and improving, then criticism never feels as harsh because you're asking almost, you know, how can I improve this in my head? And if someone's like, oh, I saw that you did that, but maybe you could try this because you're already seeking the knowledge to improve. It doesn't feel like you're being criticized. So that would be my only kind of tip to try and combat that. Yeah, and I think we all can be more mindful or practice mindfulness with our everyday activities with the horses, whether it's leading them out to pasture, riding them, whatever we do, we just need to be aware of when we might not be releasing the pressure like mm-hmm. we, we should be. And um, I think that's what builds confidence in horses. And I think um, when a horse gets confidence and all of a sudden we apply a new pressure then they're more willing to find out I wonder what she wants now and they start uh, answering back is this what you want we don't release it they'll go to another behavior and then when they hit on it you release it and I tell you what they connect with that really quick Thank you so much, Nancy, for doing this one this week. I really enjoyed last week and this week's episodes. And I just think they're so useful and so practical. Anyone who is interested on reading up on that, it is on the equitationscience.com. So it's the International Society for Equitation Science. And they have loads of interesting information up there that I recommend everyone have a go and read. And... If you do have any requests for research, then you can get in touch with myself and Nancy. If you want to drop us a voice note on Anchor, you can do that or get a hold of us on our social media. So Facebook is Conversations in Equine Science and Instagram is Conversations.EquineScience. 
Okay. Well, thanks, Kate, for doing this one with me. It was a lot of fun and it kind of made, gave me some reminders that I need to be aware of. Same, 100%. <laughs> okay. See you next week. Take care.